people are rediscovering an age-old way to travel. In Europe, medieval pilgrimage trails are becoming gratifying excursions for people of all spiritual stripes. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll meet an American couple who trailblazed the route Martin Luther walked 500 years ago from his monastery in Germany all the way to Rome. Germany is a culture that really values hiking, so they have tremendous numbers of beautiful walking trails everywhere. However, the going got trickier as they headed south. And people celebrate Easter with lots of special traditions in the Eastern Orthodox world, like sending a flame from Jerusalem to Athens every year as a symbol of the holiday. That light brings health and luck and prosperity to your house. Also, in the yard of the church, we have red eggs. Friends from Greece and Bulgaria tell us the many ways they observe the Easter season. Come get inspired in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Easter is a highlight of the year for Eastern Orthodox Christians. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in a bit on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll learn about the holiday traditions they observe in Greece and in Bulgaria where modern celebrations incorporate symbolism from its pagan past. 500 years ago this past January, Martin Luther was sent by his religious order to visit his superiors in Rome. The purpose? To try to iron out differences emerging between the communities of monks back in Germany. Things didn't work out so well. Recently, a Lutheran pastor from Virginia and her husband decided to try to recreate Luther's long pilgrimage, as a way to try to boost ecumenical efforts to bridge differences between Protestants and Catholics today. Reverend Sarah Hinlicky Wilson and her husband Andrew Wilson trekked a thousand miles in 70 days from Erfurt in Germany all the way to Rome. And they join us today to tell us about their hike and why they did it. Sarah and Andrew, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Now, Andrew, uh, you're a, a scholar in Reformation history got your degree from Princeton's yes. Theological Seminary. And Sarah, you're working now in Strasbourg, France at the Institute for Ecumenical Research. That's right. What is that? Oh, the Institute was founded in 1963, right in the wake of Vatican II, because the Catholic Church decided then to officially enter the ecumenical movements. And in response to that, the Lutherans thought it was time that they developed a research institute that would attend to the scholarly side of ecumenism. Ecumenism involves a lot more things like common service and mission, but this was to attend specifically to the doctrinal differences between Catholics and Lutherans and then the rest of the Christian world. So ever since then, the scholars at the Institute have been part of the ecumenical dialogues taking place between Lutherans and other churches around the world. So basically, you two are a couple of Lutherans that hope that Catholics and Lutherans can talk together better. Yes, that's correct. So ecumenism is is different Christian denominations having better dialogue and, and being able to, to worship compatibly? Well, the ultimate hope is that we can fulfill Jesus' prayer from John 17, hoping that his followers would be one the way he and the Father are one. That particular prayer really struck Christians to heart uh, about 100 years ago at the Edinburgh World Mission Conference when they realized that their mission witness was compromised because they were fighting with each other, competing for converts and slandering each other. Right. It reminds me that the word Catholic means universal. Does that apply to this? Absolutely. For the Catholic Church, the reason they joined the ecumenical movement is because they wanted to be really Catholic and involve everybody and include everybody in the meaning of the word church. So Catholic Church in the literal sense of we can be a universal church, we can work together. Exactly. So then why did you make this journey? You hiked a thousand miles from Germany in the footsteps of Martin Luther all the way to Rome. That's a lot of walking. (laughs) Well, a lot of people think and begin by thinking that Martin Luther was a Catholic and then he became a Protestant. That leaves a lot of the story out, and uh, one of the things that we tried to explore with our feet is this time uh, before the famed date of 1517, when Luther was a very dutiful Augustinian friar, a hermit of St. Augustine, a very serious one, in fact, and he was, as an obedient friar, making a business trip of sorts, as well as a spiritual pilgrimage to Rome. Um, he did this as a part of his faith and entered into it with good faith. And it was, a, we hope, a meaningful experience to him. And we wanted to enter into this period of his life before the great schism that happened later on to think, what does this mean for Lutherans and Catholics today to think about Luther making a trip to Rome? Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, we hear the word friar and monk tossed around. A friar is they're, they're similar, but a friar is more service-minded and out in the world, whereas a monk would be more contemplative and in a cloister 
thinking and praying? Yes, that, that's correct. Uh, a monk traditionally is considered someone within the strain of the Benedictine order in the West, and they lived under the motto in Latin of ora et labora, prayer and work, okay. in a cloistered environment. And a friar was a movement that started as a missionary movement in the uh, 12th century and involved taking vows and living in a community, but also doing one's work primarily not in the fields, but uh, in catechism and in missionary activity and care for the poor and the sick. So in the year 1510, Martin Luther hiked. He set out on this pilgrimage as a good, if struggling, Catholic, hoping to stoke his faith and commitment to his church. Yeah, I don't think you'd even want to say he was struggling at that point. He was quite happy. He'd been a, a friar for five years at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be, from what we looked at, there didn't seem to be much signs of struggle. Those were to, to evolve in the years to come. Okay, so what was the route that he took? The route that he took, we struggled finding one, both one that's historically accurate and one that we could physically and safely follow in 2010, and those were often not the same. Uh, We found uh, in our research for this trip that in 1500 in Nuremberg, uh, there was a printer by the name of Erhard Etzlaub who printed the Roma Pilgacata. It was printed and in color and um, it looked like a real map. And it has lists of all of the routes that go from Germany to Rome. So Luther was not trailblazing. There were established routes. Oh, no. (laughs) No, uh, and... And uh, what's interesting, when you look at this map, it's basically, from our perspective, trying to actually find a route, it's simply a kind of list of cities uh, from one city to the next. And so finding the way that Luther went, in some ways, is very easy, because uh, from where he was in Erfurt, there was kind of one route south, or there were two different ones, and we know he took one. And so you just kind of follow the dotted line on this map down to Rome. But back then you would just walk on a road because it was exactly. shared with people and animals. And uh, today you, you don't walk on the Autobahn. No, exactly. <laughs> he, was, he would have had, I think, a fairly simple task of navigation. He simply would have went from one city to the next, from one way station to the next, from one Augustinian monastery or, or priory to the next. It would have been... a easy stages. In the modern day, we think travel is easier. Were there some ways where the the trek would have been easier for Luther than it was for you 500 years later? I think in finding his way and in the abundance of come-as-you-are facilities, those are the two main things. Uh, First, I've already mentioned, he simply would have followed the road from one town to the next and shared the main street with everybody. Uh, The other way that it would have been easier is that he could have simply showed up at basically any monastery and as a religious on on an official business to Rome would have been welcomed and shown hospitality, probably donated. Uh, For us, traveling in the modern world, you can't really do that. Uh, We found you have to make reservations. (laughs) You have to call ahead. You have to email uh, ahead a monastery. You just can't knock on the door and say, we're a couple of Christian wayfarers. Do you have a bed? No, not all are open for hospitality to people who just show up. And the ones who are have lots of people who like to use them, so you're not assured of a room either. So it's just like with a hotel in that respect. And and our route, there wasn't, they aren't evenly spaced. In some places they're abundant, in other places they've simply been abandoned. So mostly you camped then? Uh, Well, (laughs) we we had intended camping uh, a lot ahead of time, but we ended up not camping very much, in fact only once, for two reasons. One is that in Germany, wild camping, as we call it in the, in the United States, is in fact illegal in many places. Uh, so you can't just set up your tent wherever there's a piece of forest. Hmm. The other one is that we uh, found that we really needed regular access to electricity. <laughs> Not only electricity, but a kind of space to do uh, mental work after we finished. Every day, Sarah had work to do and writing Mm -hmm. about our experience of the day, and I took every day between two and 300 pictures that I would have to process and caption and upload. And all of those things required access to our modern communication networks, which was not conducive to 
a camping experience. I, I should add the third reason that we didn't camp is that we had appallingly bad weather <laughs> for mm. our first three and a half weeks in Germany. We had rain at the first 21 out of 25 days. Oh, no. Um, and, and singularly cold, too. I mean, everyone we oh. met said this is the coldest summer that they could remember. So oh. the first week we left on August 22nd, we weren't even didn't even have warm enough clothes because we just assumed it would be nice and warm and toasty in August still. And mm. we were quite wrong about that. So having real shelter in the evening was definitely desirable. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Reverend Sarah Hinlicky wilson and her husband, Andrew Wilson, who followed Martin Luther's steps hiking a thousand miles from Germany all the way to Rome. Sarah and Andrew, when you were doing this hike, how would you compare the actual physical hiking experience, apart from weather, in the German stretch compared to the Italian stretch? Um, Germany is a culture that really values hiking and also biking. And so they have tremendous numbers of beautiful walking trails and biking trails everywhere. It's kind of hard to find information about them ahead of time. They don't seem to have a good sort of Internet resource you can go to to find out about these. Um, so we often discovered them as we went and were just delighted at how pleasant it was to walk through there. Uh, in Italy, it's quite different. Italy truly is the land of the automobile, um, maybe even more than the U.S. is. We heard that there are more automobiles than people in Italy, and we would believe that. Mm -hmm. um, there were many places where there weren't even sidewalks. Or we would uh, come to the edge of a town, you'd see the sign indicating the beginning of the next town, and the sidewalk would simply stop. <laughs> and you'd mm. walk through this municipality that, for whatever reason, did not care for sidewalks. So you'd get to the next town, and the sidewalk would start up again. So we spent a lot of time, much more time in Italy, walking on the edges of highways, sometimes without shoulders, mm. sometimes jumping over the guardrail or leaning over the edge while the cars sped by us, you know, praying more than we ever had in our lives that we would survive the, the physical act of walking all the way to Rome. But there's actually the Via Francigena, right, in Italy, which is a historic <laughs> pilgrimage route. Well, yes. I However, guess in, on paper, but not on trail, huh? Well, I would say about two-thirds of it is uh, probably you know, has sidewalks or is mountain trails, especially through the Apennines. It was quite nice there. Or very minor roads with little traffic. But at least a third of it was highway, very busy streets. Um, I mean, sometimes I would just become furious at where this official route was leading pedestrians, which was mm. just outrageously dangerous. So yes, it's it's an ancient route. But you know, all the all the modern roads, the paved roads for cars, they go over ancient routes because those are the obvious places to pave. There's already an established place there. Unless I think you take a real deliberate governmental decision to preserve pedestrian ways, they simply vanish. And unless you have a culture that really demands it, like German culture does, there's no reason for them to be there. Right. I am a while journeying through this world of woe And there's no sickness, toll, no danger In that bright land to which I go More with Sarah and Andrew on their thousand-mile walk in the footsteps of Martin Luther in a moment. Then, we celebrate Easter Orthodox style with friends from Greece and Bulgaria. We're at 877-333-RIC. Thanks for joining us. It's Travel with Rick Steves.
There's rich and very old symbolism in the traditions of the Eastern Orthodox Church. We'll learn about some of them in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're visiting with Reverend Sarah Hinlicky Wilson and her husband, Andrew Wilson. They're from Virginia, but now live in Strasbourg in France, where they work with an organization that seeks to bridge differences between Christian denominations. While we usually hear from people who've trekked along the medieval pilgrimage route to Santiago in Spain, Sarah and Andrew hiked more than a thousand miles from Erfurt, Germany, to Rome in Italy. The goal? Retracing the route that Martin Luther walked 500 years ago. We're at 877-333-7425. Sarah and Andrew, you hiked a thousand miles. Uh, just from a hiking point of view, what was the most enjoyable stretch of your trek? Uh, from Chiavenna to Dacio, from the foot of the Alps to the top of Lake Como. Beautiful walk through chestnut forests on an old road and beautiful views of the ridiculously steep Alps. Oh, I know that spot, coming out of the Alps to the lakes of northern Italy. And then you said you hopped mm-hmm. on a boat to go the length of Lake Como, and then you said, and that wasn't cheating because Martin Luther did the same thing? <laughs> as far as we know. Okay, that's good. And then when you did the hike, uh, I always think of all the crops and the vegetation you pass, but you commented that uh, that would have been a different landscape in Luther's time. Uh, yeah, many of the crops that are common, the chief of which is corn, didn't exist in Luther's day. Uh in, in Europe. In Europe, they didn't right. exist. And other things that are major crops, uh, like potatoes and tomatoes. New World crops pretty much dominate a lot of the agricultural area in Europe, then. That's correct. Absolutely dominate, yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We're speaking with Reverend Sarah Hinlicky wilson and her husband, Andrew Wilson, who hiked the, the pilgrimage route of Martin Luther on the 500th anniversary of this hike, 1,000 miles from Germany to Rome. Gary's on the phone in Georgetown, Texas. Gary, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick and Andrew and Sarah. I am very impressed by the pilgrimage that you have made, and uh, it must have been a wonderful experience for you. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering if there are people in Germany today who are as interested in making this pilgrimage and hoping to foster reconciliation as you two have done. Yes, in fact, we know there are a handful of Germans who have already taken this pilgrimage. They didn't do it in a public fashion as we did or with a blog or for ecumenical purposes. But uh, we did find a little book called In the Footsteps of Martin Luther, and the author did retrace the steps. And another person who commented on our blog said he did it as well. There's also within Germany, I think, a 300-kilometer kind of Luther trail for uh, Protestants to do pilgrimages there, too. Um, Generally, we find that Europeans are quite positive towards ecumenism. It's interesting. In Europe, ecumenism is much more closely tied to peacekeeping because they have lived with the legacy of religious war, whereas in the U.S., um, ecumenism has more to do with market forces. So there's a very different kind of spirit in which the two continents engage in the ecumenical task. That's great. I'm I'm glad that the, uh, the Europeans themselves are interested in reconciliation it's been very difficult in germany over the centuries to uh you know, with the protestant reformation and then you know a lot of uh, christians accommodated with uh, with nazism uh, during the second world war uh, i'm sure there are a lot of rifts that need to be healed a lot a lot but they i mean our impression is quite positive they they seem to care there are a lot of people who are involved in it from a, a lay to a clerical level I think this 500th anniversary of the Reformation will be a great opportunity to do some constructive things in that regard. I would hope so anyways. I would hope so too. Thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Brother Martin, you see, God in his infinite wisdom never allows us to stray too far. I still have a long way to go, Father. So do we all. And you leave tomorrow. Leave? Where am I going to? <laughs> Forgive my little joke, brother. I've decided to send you on a mission in my behalf. You're going to Rome, little brother. Rome. Rome? It's a petition I'm sending to the Holy See. You'll go with a brother monk. But what about my studies, Father? This will do more for you than all the studies in the world. There is so much to see, so much to do in Rome. Why, the journey itself is an act of faith. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Reverend Sarah Hinlicky wilson and Andrew Wilson about their 
500th anniversary pilgrimage, walking the steps of Martin Luther from Germany all the way to Rome. And Neville's on the line from Victoria in British Columbia. Neville, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. How are you doing? Great. Um, what's your connection with this uh, Martin Luther trek? Well, what, I, I was very curious because my wife and I uh, walked the Via Brancigena in 2008. We walked it from Switzerland to Rome. So I was kind of curious about how Sarah and Andrew fared um, walking um, at least parts of the same route. They walked, obviously, from Pavia to Rome on the Via Francigena. And I heard, uh, you know, I've heard heard some of their firsthand experiences because, uh, like Andrew and Sarah, we had to kind of you know, create our own map books and own guidebooks to, to do the route because it wasn't documented. So I just was, you know, wanted to kind of get a kind of first-hand account of how they went through the planning process of actually, you know, organizing the trip and actually planning and, and trying to determine the route and what, you know, did they use any guidebooks? You know, we experienced a lot of things that you've already suggested in terms of the trail and how some places there was a trail and some places there wasn't a trail. Um, and we dealt, you know, with busy roads at, at different times. So I just wanted to get your kind of firsthand experience of how you kind of plan for this trip and what kind of resources you used to kind of, you know, map out the route itself. Oh, yeah, thanks, Neville. In fact, uh, I remember you. Uh, you made a comment on our blog, and uh, thank you very much for doing that. You're welcome. For planning, we used um, three different printed guides. One was put out by Pilgrim Press. It was by uh, Paul Oh, Paul Chin, yeah. Back, yeah, yeah. And um, that was extremely helpful. And we also had a guide in German that helped us a little bit. And we also paid to join the Via Francigena Society in, in France, where we live. And we were provided with some kind of up-to-date information about lodging from them. For actual navigation on the field, since we were doing this trip in a 2010 style with complete with a smartphone with GPS capabilities, I actually downloaded and was able to download from the Italian Ministry of Culture a set of GPS tracks. So for much of the trip, I I navigated by following these GPS tracks. Now, I have to say that there's no central authority controlling the Via Francigena, and so um, you get conflicting information in some sections by the Italian Ministry of Culture tells you one thing, and the Chin guide tells you another, the German guide says one thing, and then at one point, we were in, we just entered Lazio, this Italian comes zooming up to us, he saw us in the distance, we were walking on this very busy highway, and he introduced himself as Massimiliano, he was the director, or had promoted himself as the director of the Via Francigena in Lazio, and he gave us his own set of guidebooks, and right. he told us, no, 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 don't follow that one, that, that's dangerous. And so, that we were very fortunati to have <laughs> met him and get these real guidebooks. Yes. He showed us his own sign, which he had used to mark the route in Lazio, and said, follow this one. This one will get you to St. Peter's in Rome. So Neville and Andrew and Sarah, you've hiked all the way from, in Neville's case, Switzerland, and in your case, uh, Germany. You finally get to Rome, as Martin Luther did. What is the practice when you come into Rome as a pilgrim, and, and what is sort of the, the culmination of your pilgrimage? Well, for the Via Francigena, the destination is definitely St. Peter's Square in Rome, the Vatican. Um, In Luther's time, the proper thing to do would be to take a pilgrimage within the city through the seven historic churches, starting at St. Paul's outside the walls. You would also have seen St. Peter's, which was just in the early stages of being rebuilt in 1510, St. John Lateran, St. Mary Magdalene, a couple other churches. Luther had four weeks, and he did everything there was for a pilgrim to do in Rome. We had about two and a half days, so we had to be a little more efficient in our choices. So we walked all the way through Rome to the south end to St. Paul's Outside the Walls, and that was our final destination point. Uh, visited there first, and then the next day we went back up to St. Peter's and visited theirs as well. For us, that was a deliberate decision because we couldn't recreate Luther's historic visit to Rome, which took four weeks we decided to do this as a deliberately ecumenical conclusion to our pilgrimage. St. Paul is often claimed by Lutherans and other Protestants as their symbol or their figure. Um, And St. Peter is, for Catholics, obviously, being the first pope. And so we thought visiting the tombs of these two apostles, who were famous for having a big disagreement that's recorded in the New Testament, mainly in Acts and Galatians, and yet these these two uh, apostles who had some differences of opinion were both martyrs for Christ. They gave their lives both in Rome. They're both buried in Rome. They're both writers and figures in the New Testament. So we thought, symbolically, we wanted to conclude by 
paying homage at these two places as a kind of symbolic invitation for Lutherans and Catholics to be reconciled in their witness to Christ, just as Peter and Paul were. Fitting with your ecumenical theme, my understanding in Rome is that uh, there's sort of two overlays. All the tourists go there and they have their maps. And pilgrims, historically, have seen different obelisks and domes of churches as sort of markers as they go through all of these um, visits that are part of their ritual. Do you know anything about that where there's um, architectural and, and monumental markers that help guide pilgrims around Rome? As you're walking through the city, you do see those kinds of things, and you're right, there are different layers. We actually, we didn't even look into that before we went because we had our goals of St. Paul's outside the walls and St. Peter's. But it is true that within the city itself, there are things that if you don't have an eye to see, you won't see them. Did you climb the Scala Santa, the Holy Steps? Uh, We didn't climb it. We did visit it. Uh, that is a famous site for Luther that he remembered later in his life. Just so people know, these are the, these are the steps that Constantine's mother brought back from the Holy Land, right? That were the steps of Pontius Pilate's place. And Jesus would have climbed them on the day that he was condemned. And today, pilgrims climb them on their knees and get to the top. And, and in the Middle Ages, at the top of the steps was the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary where they kept the most precious of all the relics. And this must have been like the the awes of anybody who was making a medieval pilgrimage to Rome. Yes, uh, it was. And in, in the Middle Ages, actually, they were in a different place than they are now. They would have been behind St. John Lateran. Wasn't that, a, wasn't that a breakthrough for Martin Luther? I read that he climbed the holy steps and he got up to the top and he just kind of thought, does this even make any sense? Uh, it's something not not quite like that, but he did do that. You could get a full plenary indulgence um, if you climb at the Scala Santa. And so he was doing it on behalf of his dead grandfather, Heine. And he recalls many years later that when he got to the top of praying his way up on his knees, he had this momentary flicker of doubt in which he said to himself, but who knows if this is even true? But it seems, as far as we can tell, he suppressed that thought uh, for you know a good six or seven years before it came back in full force in the 95 Theses. Uh, but we were looking to see if we could find seeds of the future reformer, and that is the only one we found in this Martin Luther of 1510. Wow. So it took him seven years for all of his um, ideas to sort of come to fruition when he was bold enough then to symbolically kick off the Reformation by naming those 95 points for discussion under the walls of that building where he was working as a friar. Exactly. And that is what we're approaching, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. After making this hike from Erfurt to Rome... What is your hope on how we can celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? Well, you know, Rick, for for the past 500 years, uh, less so in the last 50, but it's still there, Lutherans and Catholics have been defining themselves against one another. You can look back and see how in their writings and in their decisions, they've deliberately chosen to emphasize things at the expense of the other or to lift up things that they have that the other one didn't. And so it's in a strange way we've lived in this kind of mutually parasitic relationship with one another where we had to deny our commonalities and overemphasize our differences. I think what I would like to see happen is now in a state of uh, greater agreement where we've had 50 years now to talk together and discover we're not quite as far apart as we thought we were, I'd like to see us look back over our history together and with a really bold and honest look say, where did we do wrong? Where did we provoke the other to go somewhere that they didn't really need to do? How did our political decisions, which were a huge part of the Reformation, force the hand of the theologians to say something that maybe they would not have said Um, I think it's only by taking an honest look at our history, fessing up where we did wrong, asking for forgiveness. uh, I think that will be the way towards real reconciliation. But I think it has to come with a real honest appraisal of the past. There's already a precedent set for this last summer at the Assembly of the Lutheran World Federation, which is a worldwide fellowship of Lutherans. There was a decision made based on extended project with Mennonites, who are heirs of 16th century Anabaptists, to look into the history of how Lutherans promoted um, the abuse, political abuse of Anabaptists. And when the Lutherans were able to recognize this, they publicly, as a church, asked for forgiveness of the Mennonites for what we did to their 16th century ancestors. 
uh, what our ancestors did to their ancestors. And in return, the Mennonites issued a full declaration of pardon and joy in our reconciliation. I was there. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed in my life. And uh, it is perhaps an optimistic dream, but I would love to see the same thing happen in 1517, where Lutherans and Catholics can stand up and say, here's what we did wrong, and we are sorry. And the other ones say, we hear your apology, and we forgive you. And I would imagine Martin Luther would think the same thing today, looking at the uh, the opportunity that Vatican II, is that, Sarah, what you mentioned 50 years ago, is that is that the opening given by Vatican II? Exactly. The Catholic Church officially entered the ecumenical movement with the decree on ecumenism during the Second Vatican Council. So this is very hopeful, and it's uh, quite inspirational for you to retrace these steps 500 years later. You've got a a very good uh, website at hereiwalk.org, hereiwalk.org, where people can follow more details about the the pilgrimage that Reverend Sarah Hinlecky Wilson and Andrew Wilson made, retracing the steps of Martin Luther 500 years later. Sarah and Andrew, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's Thank you. You're delight. welcome. Tell us about your travel impressions in the form of a haiku poem. You know how they work. There's three lines describing a scene, maybe with a bit of a surprise at the end. And the pattern is five syllables on the first line, seven on the second, and five syllables again on the last line. There's a link in the radio corner at ricksteves.com for sending us your original haiku. Here's what some listeners recently sent in about their travels around the world. Marion Disney of Bend, Oregon, sent us this haiku she wrote about the view from Pilot Butte. Bowl made of mountains, rose edge, blue basin, cloud rise, filled with light and snow. Tom Basin splits his time between Nelson, New Zealand and Hillsboro, Oregon. He had this poetic observation from the veranda while having breakfast in Ubud, Bali. Four dragonflies dance, droning on their vine-like perch. Sixteen wings sing songs. Danielle Sapino of Warren, Ohio, sent us a batch of haiku she wrote on the beach in Kailua, Hawaii. Here are some of our favorites. All the grains of sand, a stage for the sunbathers, and waves to crash on. Pigeon's evil eye, he nests in the sand by me. He sits and he taunts. Being hit by sand, like an uncooling rainstorm, is not refreshing. It's times like these I wish I had my camera, but I got haiku. Again, we'd like to receive a haiku from you about your travels, or send us a short brag about your hometown. Look for details from our 15 Seconds of Fame link. It's in the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Our travels for Easter this year on Travel with Rick Steves are taking us to the eastern branch of the Christian Church to discover some of the traditions the Orthodox faithful associate with the holiday. You can share some of your Easter traditions with us in our online message board. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. As a movable feast, the date of Easter varies from year to year. It all depends on the timing of the full moon and the spring equinox. It often falls on a different day in the eastern and western churches. But this year, it happens that April 24th is the date for Easter on both the western and the eastern church calendars. Since Easter is even bigger than Christmas in the east, we thought this would be a good time to get a better understanding of the holiday's traditions from a couple of our friends who were raised within the Orthodox faith. We're joined by tour guides from Greece and Bulgaria. Anastasia Gaitanu comes to us from Greece, and Lubia Boyanin comes to us from Bulgaria. And we're looking forward to Easter. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lubia, what do you look forward to in Bulgaria for Easter? How is oh, it a special this is, holiday? Uh, this is my favorite time of the year. 
More and than I think not only for me, for all of Bulgarians. More than Christmas. More than Christmas. For us, uh, resurrection means the beginning of new life, beginning of uh, the nature is coming to be green, to to be happy after the long winter. And for for us, we are celebrating with lots of events. I would say with uh, deep roots of uh, pagan. From the so the whole Easter thing, resurrection and springtime and the pagan ideas that winter is over, this is all still yes, a part of this yes. psyche. Yes, so the resurrection Bulgaria. is very important. Right. And uh, for the religious uh, view of, uh, of the event, resurrection means beginning of the new life. We all were saved. That's the best news uh, this in the is Christian the, this festival. This is the very yeah. important, and we are celebrating with the midnight services. Mm-hmm. But uh, the event is not only one um, particular day. The event is the whole week, starting from St. Lazarus Day. Okay, now I want to get into that in just a moment, but I want to hear from Anastasia. As you look forward to Easter in Greece with the uh, Greek Orthodox religion, what's it like? Well, for us, I, I suppose for the whole Orthodox world, Easter is a lot more important than Christmas. Because Christmas is the beginning, is the birth, but the birth is nothing without the crucifixion and the resurrection. So it's a, it's a lot more important, and it does not only mean the beginning of a new life, it's, uh, it's the salvation of mankind in general, if, of course, you believe in it, because everything has to do with faith. You either believe in that or not. When you celebrate Greek Orthodox uh, Easter, what does Lent mean to you? Lent is um, a period, so-called Great Lent, because mm-hmm. there are three. Lent periods okay. in the whole of the year. One before Christmas, one in the summer, and one before Easter. It's a 40 days fasting time period. And fasting means um, not just avoiding to eat certain foods, but also uh, trying to lead a life that is away from sin and from the small joys of life. Like, for example, if you're a smoker, you try to reduce a bit smoking, not only that. And you just try to think more of yourself in a spiritual way. And, and it's a kind of a spiritual preparation for Easter, then. It is. It is a spiritual preparation for Easter, definitely. And it is a way of, of letting you understand the Easter week better, uh, cleansing you, you have, yourself. You have three of these meditative periods for sort of getting your soul ready for some great festival. Yeah. And the Easter Lent is called the Great Lent. Yes. Now, what about Clean Monday? Clean Monday is the beginning of the Great Lent. And we call it like that, Clean Monday, because it has to do with cleansing yourself. Okay. And, and it's the beginning of fasting. The beginning. Okay. This is a public holiday in Greece, this Clean it Monday. It is. Clean Monday is a public fa- holiday. Is it a family time? Yeah. It's definitely a family time, and usually people meet, go out then, and many times we have uh, lunch together. Of course, lunch in Greece uh, during holidays is not just a one-hour thing. It could be a one-day-long thing. (laughs) It's your big, fat (laughs) Greek holiday meal. Like that, something like that. Lubia, tell us more about Lent in Bulgaria. The Lent, oh, it's very, also very interesting. We're starting uh, preparation for Lent with the two very happy events. One is the the last day when we eat meat. Uh, it's called Mesni Zaguvezni. Whoa, the last day of meat for the 40 days, The last day huh? of meat is uh, eight weeks before Easter. It's kind of like Mardi it's Gras a Sunday. When, when everything it's, goes. Uh, yeah. Usually this is a Sunday, and we visit uh, families when we can eat uh, meet together to share. But the next week, the next Sunday is um, more very important because we call it the cheese, uh, the cheese Sunday, when uh, this is the last day when the families are eating dairy farm products like cheese, milk, uh, eggs. Wow. This and, is, so first um, of all, there's your last meat. And then a, a week later, it's your last cheese and dairy. last cheese. And this day, when we celebrated this Sirnizaguvezni uh, day, for us, is the best, we say, because it's Forgiveness Day. And if you do mistakes during the year, if you say some bad words to a neighbor or to a parents or to your relatives or friends, uh, this is a very good excuse when you can go to, to them to this day. You can go and you can say, please forgive my mistakes, my sins. Now, usually the younger people are doing this uh, towards the older relatives or friends. And we all have um, received this forgiveness. We are now 
ready to do more mistakes for the next year. <laughs> you clean the slate. <laughs> and we clean. And uh, this is on Sunday. Uh, for us, a clean Monday means that you should not eat anything. And uh, in some areas of Bulgaria, they um, you have in America uh, mummers. Uh, mummers, mummers for, I think, Philadelphia mummers who yeah. are dancing for the 1st of January. We have a mummers who are for the January, for the new year. How are these but mummers now the associated mummers, with the, Easter? The mummers, uh, they are the ones who, uh, through the games, are presenting resurrection of nature. And usually those mummers, uh, they are men only. Women are not allowed to participate in this event. Some of them with the big masks, very big uh, tall mask, and with the bells. And they are jumping. They are not allowed to talk. They can jump and uh, with the sound of the bells, uh, they push out. The idea is to push out the bad spirits from the village. But the most important part of the mummers group, this is um, a group of uh, uh, men who have an animal. This is uh, two men who are presenting uh, the play of animal. could be um, ox or then be a camel or a goat or any other animal. And these uh, uh, mummers, they have to visit every home in the village. They, they have a quite a difficult job for this day. They are visiting, and in front of every home, uh, when they greet the owners of the home, the animal is dying. And when the animal is dying, there is one person who plays, it's like a theater, like a performance, like a carnival. One person uh, is a doctor who helps the animal to be uh, turned back to the life, and everybody jump, everybody enjoy, and so this is kind of mystical presentation so of resurrection. this is sort of a, a mystical theater representing... The mystical theater and the, the event. Hmm. The event uh, finishes uh, late afternoon before the sunset at the square of the village when um, those mummers, uh, we call cookery, are presenting a plowing, symbolic plowing. and Pl- Plowing. Plowing. In the, in the dirt, plowing yeah. in, a, in a circle and spreading wits. Okay, so this sounds like there's these crazy decorated dancers that celebrating yes, the arrival crazy. of spring. Very it's crazy a little bit pagan. It's a well pagan. Cra- it's a pagan. All right. What day do the mummers come exactly? Um, they're doing their celebration on the Sunday, the Tuesday, forgive me. Tuesday, so this is... And the Monday, the clean Monday they're doing. Now, is clean Monday the beginning of Holy Week? Or the beginning of Lent, because there's beginning a, of Lent, beginning of Lent, beginning of Lent, okay. and after that we have this uh, this week of uh, Lent. We are not allowed for the first three days. We are not allowed to eat anything and to drink anything. The drink you can have on Monday after five o'clock after sunset. So this Lent business is pretty serious here. If you're it's a if serious, you're, if you're a very serious. So three days you have to be very strict. Okay. And then we have a celebration on Saturday. Uh, we call it the Horse Easter. It's a Saint Theodore Day. According to Saint the Orthodox Theodore Church. Day, Theodore the Horse Day, Easter. The Horse Easter. When everyone who has a horse has to decorate the horse a very pretty well. And the, here I brought this, you see this red and well, white like amulet. A little pom pom. <laughs> yes. We uh, go to like a martinitza. Yes, all the horses are decorated uh, with those pompons um, wow. around. And they have a parade and horse races in uh, every village. It's, it's a very cheerful day. St. Tudor Day or the Horse Easter. The Horse Easter. Now let's go back to Greece here. Anastasia. Bulgarians really pull out all the stops here. They decorate their horses. They don't eat cheese. They don't eat meat. They got these mummers dancing around. They they fake kill animals and bring them back to life. Does Greece do the same? Uh, no, not really. Well, <laughs> we do have uh, the two Sundays, the Sunday of meat, the last Sunday of meat, and the last Sunday of cheese is the same. Right. But uh, no, we don't, you don't decorate have the your mummers. No, <laughs> we do have uh, feasts like that that are relics to save the pagan time. But this is all during the carnival time, till Clint Monday. Clint Monday, there is nothing like that. It's an Eastern Orthodox-style Easter get-together right now on Travel with Rick Steves. From Sofia, Bulgaria, Luba Boyanin joins us to share some of the many traditions her country observes around the Easter holidays. And from Thessaloniki in Greece, tour guide Anastasia Gaitanu is with us as well. Okay, let's talk about you've had all of this denial that is all around Christendom during Lent. Now you're going to sort of celebrate the resurrection, Mm -hmm. the arrival of spring, the uh, resurrection of Jesus, and you're going to eat well. Is that right? So now, in Greece, how do you make up for all that denial from your stomach's point of view? (laughs) Well, first of all, you have to think of what you're not allowed to eat. It's not exactly like in Bulgaria. Well, during the 40 days, 48 days actually, with the Easter week, you're not allowed to eat any dairy products, uh, any fish, 
uh, any meat, anything wow. that has blood. Hmm. So that's why you're not allowed to eat fish. But you can eat um, uh, seafood, uh, for example. Squids are allowed. Squids don't have blood. Well, they got you don't see it. Of course they yeah. do, but you don't see <laughs> okay. it. It's what you don't yeah. see. Okay. Right, but, um, and then you come to the Easter week, and the Easter week is the most important one because that's the Passion Week. So you have to, let's say, symbolically suffer with God together. Right. Right. And uh, there is a, a climax to the whole thing, mm-hmm. starting mainly on um, Thursday. And Thursday is the preparation for the grave. Then also there is a, a wonderful Mass in the church. And then on Friday, it's uh, the day where... Good Friday. Uh, Good Friday, exactly. Uh, we do have in the church the so-called epitaph, which means on the grave. That is a kind of table that has a canopy on it. And symbolically, it is the grave of Jesus. And there is also a kind of cloth on it where you see uh, Jesus then as an, an embroidery, usually, um, depicting the body of Jesus then going into the grave. And that is decorated with flowers, usually either with carnations or with roses, white and red. And there are the crosses that are made with the roses. And then there is a great procession on that day. There is a great liturgy, of course. And this is Good Friday. Yeah, that's Good Friday. And it's then, morning. And then day. Sunday arrives. And what and happens? Then, and then Saturday. Saturday, Saturday mm-hmm. is the main climax because Saturday is the resurrection day. Okay. And uh, that happens at midnight. Course, midnight, Saturday midnight, night. Midnight, yeah. Midnight. Of course, we don't exactly know when it happened because in, in every gospel book it's a bit different. Right, but, but that's we the prefer big, midnight. It's the big um, Easter yeah. Mass is, yeah. is midnight Saturday. And then after the Mass? And then after the Mass, then uh, during the Mass, first of all, we get the Holy Light. That is the eternal divine light given to us by God. Uh, there is this wonder in Jerusalem where the lights uh, go on on themselves, like the candles. And there is a special flight every year from Olympic Airways that brings that light, that divine light, from Jerusalem to Athens. Because due wow. to the time difference, it gets on time. Right. Or in time. And, uh, of course, you only get it that real light in Athens and every other church, the priests lights the candles. But that light is a blessed light, and that brings um, health and luck and prosperity to your house. So you bring it to the house, and you make with, uh, with the smoke the sign of the cross at the doorstep or, or the lintel of the door, so that you're protected and blessed during the whole year by God. And then you get into the house, of course. And the first thing you do, and some do it also in in the yard of the church, is we have red eggs. The egg is a very old symbol. It's a pagan symbol, actually, but the church has taken it and given a new uh, symbolical meaning to it. It's a symbol of the new life because in the egg there is a life. And if the conditions are the correct ones, this life can develop. So it's like the grave of Jesus and the resurrection. That's the symbolical meaning of that. Okay. Now, in Bulgaria, Lubia, you have a, the good luck crack also, right? Tell us about that. Oh, uh, yes. We have it uh, almost the same. Sure. Um, except we have uh, for a week before Easter, on the Saturday uh, before Easter, we have a celebration of St. Lazarus Day. And St. Lazarus Day for us is very important for all the girls, uh, not married girls. Not the girls have to be dressed as a little brides, except the veil. And they have to have a beautiful decoration on their heads with the flowers, and they are dancing. So the girls have to walk around the village in uh, these groups, and they have one girl who is uh, leading the procession, and she's called Kumitsa. Kumitsa uh, means the like a little princess or little queen. Uh-huh. And uh, they're dancing uh, dances. These are special dances. It's called the uh, St. Lazarus dances. The girls are called Lazarki from St. Lazarus Day. And they um, uh, they have a songs, the most beautiful songs, maybe one over 300 different songs they have to bless every one member of the family. They uh, collecting white eggs. And the next Thursday, the great Thursday, 
they can dye X and they can paint the X with the beautiful colors, with the symbols, different symbols. The X have to be painted. And this X they can give when the, the time of Easter comes to their beloved boyfriends or to people that they really love it. So the colored Easter eggs really have a lot of uh, care and, and thought that goes into them. Yes. And it's a way to yes. express your love for yes. a special person. And uh, the table we have on Friday, the table that is taken out of um, the altar and it stays inside the church, we obligatorily have to pass under the table. Three times. Uh, under the table? No, we have only one time oh, because it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. So you have the big mass at midnight on Easter, yes, uh, on Saturday yes. night. And we have also Bulgaria Air who fly to Jerusalem with the special charter flight to Jerusalem. And together o- Olympic with this Air light, and Bulgarian Air mm-hmm. bring the light from Jerusalem to Sofia and Athens. Yes. So I want to stress that uh, this is a, a very, very alive festival in the, in the religious calendar yes. in Greece and in Bulgaria. Yes. And if you really enjoy Easter, it's generally not on the same day as Easter in the Western Christian world. Uh, in 2011, Easter does happen on the same day, April 24. But uh, I understand that in the Orthodox uh, Church, it's based on the Julian calendar, and that lets it fall generally after Easter in Western Europe and the United yeah. States. All right. No, this year, in 2011, they're together. They're together. Uh, and uh, 2000 also, they were together. And uh, now they start the two churches, the Western Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. They have more and more often, and two years ago also was together. Oh, really? Well, maybe that's a good sign. I hope so. (laughs) Of course, in Easter, all over the world, people say, Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Can you say that in Bulgarian? In Bulgarian, we say, Christos voskrese, and we reply, Vuistina voskrese. He is risen indeed. And in Greece? Oh, we say, Christos anesti, and the answer is, um, Alithos anesti. And if if you just want to say, Happy Easter, what do you say? Kalo Pascha. And for me, it sounds a lot easier. Happy Easter. Lubya <laughs> Boyanin from Bulgaria and Anastasia Gaetanu from Greece. Thank you very much and happy Easter. Thank, Thank you. you. You too. Happy Easter. Christos Voskrese. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at WVTF and Roanoke for their help today, and to Keith Stickelmeyer for reading today's listener haiku. You'll find many interviews from past editions of the show arranged by the countries we discuss. They're available to download to your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on our website at ricksteves.com or as an app at iTunes. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.